questions. Always have loved questions. I understand that when I was younger than the days I can remember, I asked a lot of questions. Maybe, maybe frustrated some people with my questions. I don't know that. I uh, kind of hope not, but I love questions. I love asking them. I love looking for the answers. A lot of times I think we can't get good answers until we ask good questions. Or maybe we should say until we refine our questions to really narrow that all down so that we, we get it straight. Well, a colleague asked me a question earlier this week, and I really liked the question. No one had asked me that question as far as I could ever remember, and it kind of took me by surprise. But fortunately, I've been working on the subject a little bit this week, so I've been thinking about it. But anyway, my friend asked me, what's the most common mistake people make when it comes to serving? Now, you and I know the Bible says a lot about serving, uh, has a great deal to say about it, and we're going to talk about that today. But notice the question my friend asked me, what's the most common mistake people make when it comes to serving? Well, I had to think a little bit on that one because there are a lot of dynamics to this idea of serving, a lot of things we need to understand correctly so that we serve the way the Bible describes serving. And after a while, I gave him my answer. And after a moment, I'm going to give you the answer I gave him. Well, welcome to the program today. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we work to strengthen our confidence in God, because we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I really am challenged by that idea, and I hope you are, that, that we really have confidence that God is trustworthy, because in so many ways, and I realize we use the word faith in lots of ways, but in so many ways, when it comes down to the ins and outs of our lives, when it comes down to the decisions we make, a lot of it comes down to do we really have confidence in God? Do we trust Him? Well, I'm the pastor of Diplomat Westland Church in Cape Coral, Florida, so I am a real pastor. Surprise, surprise. And I want to always thank my church for their support of this effort. They are kind enough to, to rally behind it. And, and we want you to know we do it for your benefit. We don't do it for our benefit. We do it, and we hope it's a help to you, because we want to strengthen each other's confidence in God. And that's why we do this. So welcome to our time together. Thanks for spending it with us. It's an honor to be able to spend a little time with you, and hopefully we can exchange some, some ideas and, and build some confidence as we stretch toward the calling that God has for all of us. So back to the answer to my friend's question. Now, I remember he asked me a, a penetrating question. For me, it was, it was penetrating. He said, what's the most common mistake people make when it comes to serving? And I thought about that, and I knew he didn't want a long answer. He wanted a short answer, and that pretty well came to me after I'd reflected just a moment. And like I said, I'd been studying, and we're going to talk about what I had been working on in just a minute. But I finally, I said to him, the most common mistake people make is people assume that serving means they do whatever someone asks them to do without question. Now, that may surprise you that I came up with that answer. It surprised him. He didn't expect that. Well, I didn't say it to surprise him. I'm not saying it to you to surprise you. 
I'm thinking about it because really, I think that is a remarkably common mistake. Somehow we've gotten this idea that serving means that if somebody asks me to do something, I must do it and not question it, just do it because I'm supposed to be a servant. Well, I don't think that that's the service that the Bible has in mind. I think there's a little more to it than that. And that's why I think that that's the most common mistake, because if we assume that serving means we have to do whatever someone asks us to do, then someone could pretty easily drive us crazy, and they would enjoy doing it. So if, if serving is pandering, and I don't use that word lightly, pandering to everyone's wants, then something's wrong with that definition, because clearly that isn't what the the great people in the Bible did. Clearly, that's not what Jesus did. And so it's, a, I think, a common mistake, and I don't think we talk about it much. I think we just kind of assume that, that we're supposed to do that, and we're, we're not the right kind of people if we just don't bow down to everybody's whims and wishes and do for them whatever they want us to do for them without question. Now, there's a whole lot of things we could talk about to qualify that and understand it. But let me just say this. Sometimes it does mean we help them when they ask for it. Sometimes that's what they genuinely need, and it's the best thing for them. But sometimes, might I suggest many times, when people ask us to do something for them, it's not the best thing for them. They just want somebody to do something for them so they don't have to do it. I was asked to do something this week. I didn't say Yes, I didn't say no. It was just a note was sent to me, what I consider. And I just considered it, but I knew I wasn't going to run right out and do it because I knew that wasn't the best thing in that situation. Well, probably the people involved in that would never know I thought that. I wouldn't try to be difficult. Wasn't making it harder for them. The, the situation worked itself out fine in another way. But I had to stop and think, if I respond immediately, is this the best thing for those people? And using my best judgment, it wasn't. Now, they would maybe argue that I was wrong. Maybe you would. And that's why this business of serving is so challenging. It stretches us. I, I want to encourage you right at the beginning. Maybe I need to say this more than once. You're going to be misunderstood no matter how hard you try to serve as the Bible describes serving, because people today live in a serve me world. And so what we want to talk about today is how do we serve in a serve me world? I mean, more than ever before in my lifetime, people expect people to do things for them. Now, sometimes they expect to pay for those things, and, and that's a little bit different than what we're talking about, but it indicates the mindset that so many people have that this is a serve me world. I should get what I want. And even if I pay for it, I should still get what I want. Well, how do we, how do we serve as God calls us to serve in the context of everybody expecting to be served? And yet we want to serve for the reasons the Bible says. So foundationally, when we're talking about serving, and, and we're going to go through this story from the book of Mark, Foundationally, when we talk about serving, serving is foundationally actions we take for the well-being 
of the people around us. And I'm going to give you a little more precise definition of that in the context of the story of James. But keep that in mind, that serving as the Bible describes it is not about doing whatever anybody asks you to do. It's about serving, living your life, helping your neighbor, loving your neighbor in the way that helps them, that contributes to their well-being. And it's a challenge. It is one of the one of the hardest, maybe the hardest thing I've ever tried to do is to try to think, how do I serve for the well-being of people? Because sometimes I have to say no. And that's not necessarily fun. It's not necessarily fun because people don't like to hear it. And it's always, you know, the kind of thing we want to do is to say yes. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 10, classic story. You may remember it, you may not but it's definitely worth reading and reflecting on. I'm going to read it from the Christian Standard Bible. That's the English translation I'm using today. I use that because of the study I did was it earlier in the week, and, and this kind of standard translation that's exacting, but also reader-friendly really helps me on that. So Mark chapter 10, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him, and the hymn here is Jesus, and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask for, or I'm sorry, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know what, or you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And in simple terms, this is a story that, that asks a question. James and John ask Jesus a question. There's a little dialogue. He has conversation back and forth with them, but essentially they're asking for a, a privilege in his kingdom. And Jesus gives them the answer to their specific question, but then he goes on to explain some things that they really didn't ask about, but that are so helpful for us as we try to understand what Jesus was modeling for us by his actions and teaching us by his statements here in Mark chapter 10. So it's James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. They ask him a question. They call him teacher. They acknowledge his ability to, to respond to them. And, and they, they do it in a rather clever way, a way that most of us would never do to each other. But, but we've seen it in children, and it's a it's kind of a rhetorical technique, but they wanted what they wanted without saying what they wanted. So 
Jesus, we want you to do something for us, okay? And uh, Jesus catches on, same as you would. And he wisely asked them, well, what is it you want? And so they said, when, when you come into your glory, we want to sit one of us at the right hand and one of us at the left hand. Okay, that's clear enough what they were asking for. Really what they were asking for was a promotion maybe or a title, a position, some power in that kingdom. Or maybe what they were thinking more than that, and, and it's really difficult to know for sure, but we have to factor this one in because it's something we wouldn't ordinarily think about. They may have been asking for honor. Remember, the culture of this day was all about honor and shame. Everyone tried to gain honor and avoid shame. So these two guys, James and John, they were looking for a way to advance in honor because then they would have a position in the kingdom that Jesus talked about and that they believed was going to come to pass soon. Now, in fairness to James and John, although their question was outrageous, in fairness, we have to acknowledge that Jesus had said to his disciples that one day they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it wasn't as though this was a question in a total vacuum, okay? So they would have had some expectation that there was going to become a kingdom and that they would have a seat on a throne. They were just asking for seats one and two, left and right, the two highest positions. So it's fair to, to give them that understanding, although they did misunderstand badly. But let's, let's at least acknowledge that. Um, it's also really interesting that uh, in, the, in the asking of that, Jesus says, um, you really don't know what you're asking. And then he talks to them about suffering, and he uses some rather descriptive language that is common in, in the scriptures in the New Testament. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? In other words, do you really know what you're asking? Do you really have it in you? Do you have what it takes to qualify by the suffering that is mentioned here, although not specific? Can you handle it? And, and of course, as the story unfolds, I mean, yes, they, they don't make any hesitation as we read the story. Yes, we're able. They immediately acknowledge that they can do that. And um, as I was studying this, one, one writer said, no more naive words have ever been spoken as those that came from James and John in that moment, because they didn't know what they were talking about, really. Jesus had been explaining the, the uh, future to them. In Mark, we call it the passion predictions, and there were three of them, and, and he had been explaining that to them. This was following the third of those passion predictions, and clearly they didn't get it. It's clear from every single instance when Jesus started talking to them about that. And so really they were, they were naive about it. And I'm, I'm sure Jesus recognized that. Uh, it, it's remarkable to me how uh, Jesus sees through our nonsense and has patience with us. And he seemed to have patience with them too. Well, he goes on to explain that, uh, yeah, they would, uh, they would participate in all of that, but he couldn't, um, he couldn't give them those positions. He says it's, it was, wasn't for him to decide that. It, they weren't his appointments. Someone else was going to take care of that. And uh, they were prepared for other people. And, and that's really kind of a remarkable thing that, um, that Jesus flat out says, it's, it's not up to me. Uh, 
And uh, I don't think we should overlook that. That's just really an interesting insight into Jesus and his commitment to being faithful to God um, that he admitted. It's not my decision. Sorry, guys. It's going to result in some difficult times for you. There's a bad cup coming and bad baptism coming, but that's about all I can, I can promise you at this point. So their positions of honor were not for them, not as they had hoped. And now it takes a little interesting turn because the other disciples find out what James and John were up to, and it describes them as being indignant. And that's an interesting word, isn't it? When the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now, now why were they indignant? Well, it doesn't say, it just says they were. And again, it could be jealousy. Um, I saw one writer suggested that they were indignant because they wished they had thought of asking first. And so they missed their opportunity or so they thought. Well, I don't know. We can't prove that from the text. Um, sometimes it's popular these days to say, well, a group of people is a team and they need to work together as a team. And maybe they were thinking they're a team. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe it was a collective culture and they did tend to work together differently than an, than an individualistic culture. But again, I think we have to, to factor in that maybe they were indignant because if James and John had been honored by those positions, then it would have meant that they would have had less honor, not necessarily shame, but less honor. In other words, James and John would have usurped some honor they might have wanted. Don't know, just worth considering on those kind of things. Well, then Jesus goes on to talk about what is really going on with this idea of, of having a position or what we would say being a, a leader. He refers to it as being a ruler, but he goes on to explain that, that Gentile rulers lord it over people and act as tyrants. Really interesting way it says it here, and it's consistent with other English translations. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. So great ones in the, in the Roman, Greco-Roman world were those who ruled over others, who lorded it over, who had power and authority and wielded it. And so that's the that's probably the idea that Jesus' disciples, particularly James and John, had in mind because they had been oppressed by the Romans, and they were, were yeah, looking forward to the time when they could change places, and now they could be the top dogs, so to speak. They would have the power. They would be the great ones. Well, one of the things that we should quickly identify when Jesus says that the Gentile rulers lord it over people or act as tyrants, really those two descriptions are much the same, lording it over as being a tyrant, and being a tyrant is lording it over. We use different words for that. Yes, we use tyrants. We don't tend to use the phrase lord it over, but, but when it comes to describing an approach to leading people, we use the word autocratic for someone who's a tyrant or who lords it over people. Or we might use the word paternalistic, that word probably is less frequently thought of than autocratic, but they both have similar roots and when it comes to, to leading and behaving toward people. So Jesus is quick to say, listen, fellows, whatever you had in mind about this idea of position on my right and left, we're not that kind of people. We don't lord it over people. We're not tyrants. So you need to get your mind corrected on that. And he helped them draw that correction out. 
And to be sure, in those days, they used the, the Gentiles as whipping boys a lot. And so they would have understood what was going on. And in fact, that's the way they behaved toward people. They were tyrants. But Jesus says, you, as my followers, you must be different. You can't lead that way. You shouldn't aspire to just trading positions. So now you can be the one with the power. You need to think about how you lead people differently. And then he goes on clearly to link that difference to serving. You need to serve is what he says just a few verses later. Now, before we get into what he meant by serving, we should talk about what Jesus did not say. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with this idea of serving. That's why my friend's question challenged me. Uh, I think people assume some things about leading and serving that the Bible doesn't say. We've just kind of read into that and, and come to that co conclusion, I think, erroneously. So let's think about this concept of leading, being in charge, leading a church. Let's think about that in terms of what Jesus did not say about leading, uh, about, as he says, ruling here. Same idea. I think our word leading is better because ruling implies some other connotations that that we reject. So let's just talk about leading, and the Bible uses that word frequently and in other places. So what Jesus did not say was that leading is bad. He did not say being in charge is bad. I've been around the church a while, and there are a fair number of people that, that just don't like the idea of somebody being in charge. And But Jesus never said that. He was clearly the leader of his disciples. And then people say, well, but of course Jesus was, but that's not the same for us. Well, you look at the other places in the Bible, and there were clearly people that, that God raised to be leaders. Uh, go back to Moses, trace through the Old Testament, and Joshua and others. New Testament, Peter, Paul, they, they were leaders in the church. There's no question about it. Uh, so Jesus didn't say leading is bad. He did say leading wrongly is bad. See, he said that in relation to how the Gentiles conducted themselves. He says, that's the wrong way to lead. But he didn't say leading is bad. And after all, remember, later in the New Testament, we read that the gift of leadership is a gift of grace from the Holy Spirit. So if leading was bad, there would be no gift of leadership. And clearly that exists. So important to note, Jesus did not say leading is bad. He also did not say decision-making is bad. And, and clearly, somebody has to make decisions, and, and leaders generally are tasked with the responsibility to make decisions, and, and they have the authority to make those decisions and the responsibility for those decisions. Now, I think some of what goes on in, in our, uh, how should I say, concern about leading and giving people leadership positions or leadership power, we can talk about that leadership power in a minute. I think sometimes people resent that, that they didn't get that position. Maybe they're indignant the way the disciples were. Don't know exactly if that's a parallel, but, but leaders make decisions. And Jesus never said for a, a leader not to make a decision. He never said making decisions is bad, but we have reluctance. And sometimes people disagree with the leader's decisions. That's normal. Sometimes they respond in anger or other things. Well, that's not appropriate. Leaders are just expected to make decisions, and we 
trust them to do that. Um, and sometimes leaders correct people. And Jesus does not say correction is bad. So, so some of the function of leading is not bad. Uh, the whole idea of leading is not bad. And then uh, an important part of leading decision-making is not bad. And, and yes, we understand sometimes leaders make mistakes. Welcome to life, right? So we need to note what Jesus did not say. He also did not say that leadership power is bad. Okay, leadership power, by that I mean that when we put somebody in charge, they make decisions and set direction and, and help move the project forward. So they have a certain amount, and I mentioned it earlier, decision-making authority and responsibility. That's not bad. That's decision-making. That's what we call a component of leadership power. Um, people may not like that, but Jesus doesn't, con uh, doesn't challenge the concept. I really think, and we can't unpack this very far, but uh, I, I'm absolutely convinced that so many churches and church people are so, uh, can we say, allergic to leadership power and so badly misunderstand the concept of, of leadership power that it has diminished too many churches. It's led to the churches being marginalized and their susceptibility to the power of no, because when no one is given the ability to make a decision and everybody agrees and supports it, then all the people that say no end up being in charge. And that's, uh, that's a bad thing. And Jesus never said leadership power is bad. He just expects the leaders to make good decisions and to be responsible for their decisions. So thinking about that a little bit more, this idea of leadership power and decision-making. Uh, can I tell you a little secret? It's really not a secret, but not a lot of people think about it. But I want you to think about it and to kind of come to grips with it. Almost all decisions are made by one person. Almost all decisions are made by one person. Now, that's true in in all of the arenas that I can think of of life, and I haven't had experience with everything, okay? So you may find an exception, okay, fine. Or you may want to say, well, this is an exception because of, well, maybe. But when you think about it, almost all decisions are made by one person. And making a decision isn't bad, okay? But we just kind of need to come to grips with this. Even in a legislative assembly, almost all decisions are made by one person. Now you might say, well, but they vote on it. Yeah, that's right. We do. Sometimes we say yes, and sometimes we say no, but almost always there is a person who is on one side or other of that decision. And that person almost always is the one who persuades the group of people to either say yes or no. In the in the House and Senate, I've spent some time working in the Florida House and Senate advocating for education reform in Florida. And there's no question about it that the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, they make the decisions about what gets passed by their respective chambers. It's just the way the system works. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But we need to come to grips with this whole idea of leadership, power, and decision-making. And, and people in church, as I've experienced church, they resist someone being allowed to make a decision. And usually it's been my experience that the people who resist most want the power for themselves. It's not that they don't want somebody to make a decision. They just want to make the decision themselves. 
And so we need to understand that that reaction to a leader or what we call leadership power is not because it is inherently bad. It's because too often we want to be the one in charge. But what about consensus decision-making? Shouldn't we wait or adjust the decision until we all agree? I've heard that in church plenty of times. I've heard people advocate strongly for that. We should not move forward until we're all in agreement. So the sense is we have to all adjust what we think is the right thing until we all can live with it, or we don't do anything. Well, that's a real interesting problem. A real interesting problem. And and we need to come to grips with that because what ends up happening is if we say we all have to agree is that some one person can say no and veto everything because we've agreed we all have to agree. So it gives that person the power to say no. And that person actually becomes a tyrant of sorts. Now, they may sincerely believe it's the wrong thing, but when we allow them to decide for everybody by, by saying no, then haven't we really created a tyrant in our decision-making process? Well, that's a dangerous situation because that keeps the church from moving forward. That keeps any group from moving forward. And we clearly don't want to do that. Well, we've covered some ground, haven't we? And probably none of you expected we'd talk about something like this today, but it is one of my favorite subjects. It is one that I think about a lot. It is one that we need to think about better in the church. And so I'm really glad you're here thinking along with me. And I hope you'll hang in. We're going to look at some more things. We're going to talk about how do we go about leading. We're going to talk about some of the things we've talked about so far and then get to the, the, the real importance of what does Jesus say about how we should lead. So I'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. 
Well, welcome back. I appreciate you staying with us as we explore this idea from Jesus teaching his disciples in Mark chapter 10, the whole idea of how do people lead in the kingdom of God? And how do we serve in a serve me world? We've been talking about the dangers, and I want to circle back to that just because I think it's so important for churches. And if your church struggles with decision making, this may help you. We have to be careful about agreeing to consensus decision making, because in almost every situation, one person decides. And if we agree that we have to decide by consensus, then often the person that decides is the person that says no. And they might say no out of fear. They might say no because they really don't understand. They might say no because they just don't want to do it. Uh, it could be a lot of things. And, and I'm not throwing stones at their reluctance. They're allowed to be reluctant. The question is, are we really going to give the person that says no a veto power over the church moving forward? And I suggested as part of that, that in legislative bodies, for example, the Florida House and the Florida Senate, the Senate president decides on the Senate side what bills go through the process and the Speaker of the House decides on the House side. There are many tools available for them to, to monitor the process and make sure that, that nothing comes out of their session that they don't stamp their approval on. And, and that may shock a lot of people to think that, well, don't we elect people to go up there? Yes, they all play a part in that. It's all part of the process. But at the end of the day, it's very often it's the Senate president or the Speaker of the House that decides yes or no about an issue, particularly if it's a controversial issue. We've been talking about Jesus and his approach to leading and serving, and we have to understand leading to understand serving, particularly if we're going to serve by our leadership. And we talked about how Jesus does not object to leadership power, but he does object to tyrannical leaders. And that's why I think this consensus decision-making in church is a problem because it makes one person a mini tyrant, we might say. Well, another thing that people sometimes bring up when I say that Jesus did not object to leadership power is they'll say, but, but Jesus was powerless. He came as a lowly servant born in a poor community. He didn't have wealth and influence and all those things. And, and um, well, that's true on the surface of things, but but Jesus was far from powerless, far from powerless. Have, have we forgotten his miracles? That was a demonstration of his power when he would heal the sick, when he made a blind man see, when he fed the 5,000. Those were, those were demonstrations of his power, and he definitely demonstrated that power. When we read the book of Revelation, what more dramatic demonstrations of power could we have than the way the the writer of the book of Revelation describes things. I mean, Jesus is showing his power in no uncertain terms. The key thing I think to remember about Jesus is not that he was powerless, because clearly he had, he had all the power of the creator God at his disposal. He was God incarnate. The key thing to remember about Jesus is he did not abuse his power. Tyrants abuse their power and hurt people. Tyrants overstepped the limits of their power and hurt people. Jesus had power, but he didn't hurt people. He led and served in a way that helped people. So Jesus explains leading in his kingdom and serving in his kingdom when he says, if you want first place, if you aspire to a position, then you need to serve everyone. 
So there's the connection between leading and serving. And again, Jesus does not disparage leading. He says the aspiration is fine. It's how you lead that's the issue. And so then he uses himself as an example, and it's classic statement from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many people. That is a powerful statement, particularly because we live in a serve me world. So how do we serve as Jesus served in a serve me world? Well, again, he says right up front that he didn't come to be served, to take on a great position. Tyrants want to be served. They want people to admire them, to bow down to them, to honor them, to make them wealthy, whatever you, you can think of. That's a, that's, that's a tyrant. And Jesus said, no, he did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he goes on to say, and to give his life a ransom for many people. So, in that way, he qualifies what he means by serving. Now, I said earlier that, that the big mistake people make is they assume that serving is that they have to do whatever somebody asks them to do without question. Or in other words, that leads to what we might call servitude, where, where you're forced to do whatever anybody wants you to do, no matter what. Well, Jesus didn't say that's the correct point of view. He said he came to serve and to give his life to ransom many people. Now, when he gave his life to ransom many people, what was he doing for those people? He was doing what only he could do for their well-being. He was giving his life a ransom for their well-being. And the idea of ransom in those days was the, the amount of money or the fee that was paid to get somebody released from slavery. It was purchase price for them. So if somebody was a slave and you purchased them so they could be free, that was what they meant by the term ransom that we see used here. So Jesus was giving his life so that people could be free, so people could have a free, better life, eternal life. Ransom them from the bondage, we often say, and rightfully, from slavery, from sin and from slavery. So Jesus' idea of serving was rooted in the idea that he did whatever he needed to do for the well-being of people. And we see him acting that way over and over. He even resisted sometimes people's requests, but even occasionally he was persuaded and then he acted for their well-being. He didn't aggrandize himself. He didn't puff himself up. He served the people for their well-being. We call Jesus' approach to leadership, servant leadership. And we hear all kinds of, I think, misunderstandings of the idea of servant leadership. And that's part of why we're doing this today. But let's talk about what you might call three approaches to leadership, maybe three postures to, uh, that people take when they, when they lead. And only one of them was what Jesus was talking about. The others, he said, this is not the way it's supposed to be in his kingdom. So the first leadership approach I want to suggest is autocratic. And we've probably all been exposed to that. An autocratic leader imposes his or her will on the people on the people that are they think beneath them, or that there's the people that are supposed to follow their lead. They just impose their will on them. No questions asked. Just do what you're told. It's sort of like the leader is saying, "When I say jump, you say how high." It's exactly what Jesus described when he said the Gentiles lorded over people. 
It's the raw use of power to impose his or her will on the people. And the response of the led, you know, if, if you're subject to that kind of a leader, it's, it's, well, I better do it or else I'll suffer some terrible consequence or, or it could be that you're just stubborn and you're just going to resist no matter what, because you're not going to allow an autocratic leader to treat you that way. Now I had an experience and I, I don't think this person meant to be autocratic, but it sure came across that way. And, uh, it happened a lot of years ago, and I want to be kind to the person. I don't know who the person was. I never knew this person's name. Wouldn't know them if I saw them. It had to have happened more than 10 years ago now. But um, she was definitely an autocratic leader. So I was in the hospital going to visit someone in the intensive care unit. And here locally, we have a system whereby clergy apply for, and then if appropriate, are awarded an, an ID badge that gets us into the places in the hospital where we sometimes need to go, including the intensive care unit. So I was up on the second or third floor. I can't remember now which floor it was going into the ICU to visit someone. Well, on this side of the door that, that leads into the ICU, there's a small room where family members wait while the, their, their loved one is being taken care of or sleeping or something. But they don't stay in with them continuously. Typically, they wait in that room until it's time for them to go back for another visit. And so usually when I was going for a visit, I would stop into that room and see if there were any family members there that I needed to speak to. And so I did. I walked in, checked that and wasn't common. I guess it happened a few times. I don't really remember that it was the normal thing. But on this particular day, there was a lady sitting at the desk there where the phone was, and she handled some of the communication between the families and the ICU. And she asked me if she could help me. And I explained why I was there. I was going back to visit so-and-so in the ICU. And, and she said to me, no, you're not. I said, well, yes, they allow us to do that. And I began to turn and walk away. I thought she just didn't understand. Well, she got up out of her chair and walked out into the hallway and positioned herself between me and the door to the ICU. And she said to me, you are not going in there. And I, and I tried again to explain that I was a pastor and I had the permission to do that by virtue of the, the badge that I had been issued and the hospital understood that we had those privileges. And, and, and I didn't abuse that. I always, when I went into the ICU, I went and talked to the nurse at the station there and find out how things were, make sure my visit was not going to interrupt or interfere with things. But I couldn't even get to the door because she said, no, you're not going in there. Nothing I could say would dissuade her. And finally, she said, if you go in there, I'm going to call security. I thought, oh, you don't really want to get into all that, do you? And uh, so I just, out of kindness to her and respect, I said, okay. And I went downstairs to the chaplain's office and left it with them to, to resolve. And, and I don't know what they did. I never heard the rest of the story on that. But, but clearly she had been instructed incorrectly or took it upon herself to say, no, I'm not allowing you to do that no matter what anybody says. And it was an example in a small way of an autocratic leader. Well, we don't want to be that kind of people. We don't want to be autocrats. We want to serve for the well-being of people. Doesn't mean we won't have disagreements. Doesn't mean we want it to resolve them, but we don't want to be heavy handed about it and just impose our will. Now, second leadership thing we might think about is paternalistic. The paternalistic leader is the one who says, well, I know what's best. I'll take care of you. You, you really don't know what's best for you, but you need to trust me and I'll take care of things. 
And paternalism comes from the idea of fathers and mothers taking care of their children, which they need to do because children need that kind of care. But adults don't need to be treated that way. Uh, they don't need someone to say, just do what I say and everything will be fine. I sometimes think of paternalistic leadership as the, as the pat people on the head leadership. You poor dear, I'll take care of you. You can't manage without me. So let me handle everything. You just do what you're told. And uh, yikes, in some respects, paternalistic leadership is an autocrat with a smile, but sometimes it's not positive. It can be both positive and negative. And um, ultimately, to me, paternalistic leadership demeans the people involved instead of lifting them up. And uh, Jesus did not sanction either one because he said, you're not supposed to lord it over them or be tyrants, even a tyrant that's positively paternalistic. You should not be. And, and you know, the lead, the lead in those situations, they, they sometimes like that because they say, oh, good, someone is taking care of me. Or they might say, well, who does this leader think that I am that I can't manage on my own? Why are they treating me like this? So there's some real danger in the paternalistic approach to leading. And what I want to suggest is that Jesus was talking about here in the context of serving, because he said, remember, if you want to aspire to a position, you need to serve everyone. And so he was talking about how we behave in his kingdom and how we need to serve each other, even when we are given a leadership responsibility. And so that's what we call servant leadership. Servant leadership is often talked about in terms of how Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And I don't think that's the place to start on this. I think what we need to do is we need to think a little differently about how Jesus conducted his entire life, including right here in the context of Mark, where he gives this instruction to us. He serves for the well-being of people. He, it wasn't servitude. Jesus wasn't above washing the disciples' feet. That's not it at all. But that is, isn't the best picture of what Jesus is describing here. He's talking about something different. Really, the best picture is how he lays down his life for the well-being of the people. So servant leadership is an understanding and practice of leadership that puts the well-being of the led ahead of the self-interest of the leader. Let me just run that by you again. That's, that's not difficult, but it's important. Servant leadership as an understanding and practice of leadership that puts the well-being of the led ahead of the self-interest of the leader. You see, in an autocratic leader, they're, they're all about their own self-interest. They want their way, and they expect you to toe the line and do what they tell you so that what they want, they get. Similarly, a paternalistic leader does that, too. They still have their agenda out front, and they're just being a little nicer about it, but they still expect you to do what they say to do. And here Jesus is saying that the right way to serve, the right way to lead is to put the well-being of the other people ahead of your own self-interest. That's why this is so challenging. It's challenging to make sure that you're not putting your self-interest out front, and it's challenging to make sure you understand what's the best for the people that you're working with. And it's important to understand that the outcomes are very different because the outcome of a servant approach to leading, the outcome of serving as Jesus describes it, is the well-being of the led. It's not the led getting what they want. And, and we talked about that earlier. That's a huge misconception. We don't serve so people can get what they want. We serve for their well-being. And it takes a lot of perspective, a lot of discernment, 
a lot of grace to sort that out so that we treat people in a way that leads to their well-being. We don't manipulate them. We don't order them around. We work together for their well-being. And that's exactly what Jesus said in this passage when he said, becoming great in Christian leadership means becoming a servant. And, and what that means is doing the will of God and humbly working for the good of others. That's what servant leadership is. It's a pursuit of the will of God and the well-being of others. And it's not putting yourself first, it's putting the, their well-being ahead of your own self-interest. And that's an important distinction in all of this. So important. It's the hardest thing you will try to do. In whatever area of life you, you apply this, trying to make sure that you are treating people in a way that helps their well-being and doesn't serve your self-interest can be a continual challenge. And I guarantee you, you won't be perfect at it. Not even close. And I guarantee you, a lot of people won't even understand when you try to do it, that they will, they will accuse you of one thing or another. Absolutely guarantee that. And a lot of times the reason they accuse you, so take heart, is that it's because they didn't get what they wanted. They wanted to manipulate you in a way. Let me give you an example of that. As a pastor, I occasionally have people come to me and say, you need to tell so-and-so to do so-and-so. And I'm always amused by that because not every time, but a lot of times the person that's coming to me and wanting me to tell so-and-so to do so-and-so is a person who doesn't want me to tell them what to do when I think they need some correction. So it's very difficult to navigate this and you have to really, it, it requires a lot of spiritual insight and maturity, but it's something we should pursue because Jesus calls us to that. We need to be the kind of people that serve for the well-being of others. So I was trying to think, how do we come up with a situation or an example that, that applies some of this? And, and again, it's, it's, it is such a dynamic challenge and it's so uh, full of variables because people are so different and there's no cookie cutter way of approaching this because you have to take into consideration the people around you, their assumptions, their ability to understand, all of those kinds of things, their, their ability to, to think through the issues. And sometimes when you try to talk to someone, they just can't quite get what you're talking about. I'm, I'm not saying that demeans them. It's just, that's the challenge we have if we're going to serve for their well-being. So, so here's a simple thing that maybe helps. Um, let's, let's try it and find out. It's a common thing that I've noticed around church forever. And that's the, that's the question of how does a servant leader handle people arriving late to a church service or to a meeting? Well, first thing that I, I want to say right up front is it happens and things happen. And so I, I don't approach this from any sense of needing to judge people and their behavior. I don't have come from this assuming anything because so many things can happen. It happened just last week an event was taking place at our church. Uh, we were just hosting it. We weren't involved or in charge of the event, but there was a, an accident out on the interstate that runs through our community. And some of the people were on their way up that interstate. And one of the person who was in charge got held up in that traffic jam. Wasn't a thing they could do. They couldn't anticipate that. It just happened. So first thing I want us to do is, this, is to say, we understand that things happen. When it's not chronic, we understand easier. When it's chronic, that's when we have a little more problem with people being late. 
But the question comes down to when you come into these situations and does the leader start on time or delay to allow the latecomers to arrive? And I've seen this all my life and leaders have to have to wrestle with this. Do we start on time or do we wait? What is the servant leadership approach to that? How do we respond for the well-being of the lead? Well, if you immediately think, well, you delay, then aren't you acting more paternalistic than servant? Well, you might say, but I don't want them to miss anything. Well, I don't want them to miss anything either. But don't we have to realize that if they were concerned about missing something, they would have been early? You see, we can't want something for people more than they want it. And so that's a servant approach because that's for their well-being so that they would learn to want to be on time instead of chronically late. I had a friend when I lived in Canada, and uh, he talked about how his congregation was twice the size about 15 minutes after starting time because people always came late. Well, he didn't wait for all of them to show up. He went ahead and started, and they just did what they did. And his starting was the right thing to do because it served them by giving them an example of, of servant leadership that said, you know, it's been your well-being to adjust to be on time. See, if you start on time, you're respectful of the people that are ready to go, and you're politely reminding the chronically late that they need to reorder their lives because if they don't reorder order their lives, they're going to have other bad consequences sometime. And, and we, can't, we have to care about that. We can't care more about their, their missing something than their being on time and learning that important trait for their lives. They need to, they need to get up on the, on the time and upon their behavior so that they can manage that better. Um, and, and after all, should the chronically late expect everyone to adjust to them? You know, when it comes down to it, being chronically late and expecting people to adjust to you is an inappropriate use of power. It's manipulation. So, you know, that's kind of what we need to think about when we think about serving and leading. There's a lot of dynamics. It is not easy. And by the way, if you're late for church at my church, you don't owe me an explanation. I don't even think about that. Sometimes it happens. I spend no time or energy either noticing or worrying about that. If people are chronically late for meetings where people are depending on their participation, then yes, I think we need to have some conversations about that because we need to respect people's time and not take that for granted. And we need to be gracious to each other and, and fix that out of respect for each other. And that matters. And yes, I do know that some cultures in the world don't think about time the same way we do. That's true enough, and I respect that. But at the same time, this is here and this is now. And when we live in a culture that thinks one way about time, we need to adjust to that. In the same way, when I lived in Canada, it was my responsibility to fit into their world and the way it operated and not expect them to adjust to me. So that's just a small example of, of the challenge of, of serving in a serve me world. How do we serve for the well-being of the people around us? How do we lead as Jesus called us to lead for the well-being of people and not be lording it over them, not be tyrants? Because none of us want to treat people that way. None of us want to be treated that way. It's the challenge of our time, how to serve, how to lead in a serve me world. And I want to challenge you to think about that deeply and carefully. Go back to the words of Jesus. Think about what it means to conduct your life in a way that helps the well-being of your neighbors. It doesn't pander to them. It doesn't 
feel obligated to follow their agenda, but it does recognize that love means we work for their well-being. And sometimes it means you just don't say anything and you just have to kind of work along because sometimes saying something makes it worse. They can't hear it. Sometimes you do have an opportunity to speak up and, and say a good word that moves people in the right direction for their well-being. Doesn't mean that you should become paternalistic because look how much you know. Doesn't mean you should become autocratic because if they just get their act together, their life would be so much better. No, that's not the attitude we take. We take the attitude of a servant that puts their well-being ahead of our self-interest. And we make the sacrifice to make their lives better. The same way Jesus gave his life a ransom for many so that we could be free from the power, the bondage, the consequence of sin. So go live your life as a free person. Enjoy the freedom in Jesus and give it to your neighbors as a servant leader. Thank you.